Hi, I'm the person whose closet is put in color order, but I'll also pick up an earthworm without thinking twice. In fact, I did yesterday. <laughs> it needed my help. I'm not afraid to be a little messy. Human nature is messy, but nature nature can help us embrace it. I love the brand seventh generation. Their laundry detergent lifts away tough stains with the power of bioenzymes. That's exciting. You wipe your hands on your pants after you pick up an earthworm. Seventh generation is like, don't worry, hug a dirty tree, huff some bark. It's good for you. That is the power of seventh generation. Find laundry detergent and other laundry products at seventhgeneration.com. I love worms. How about Captain Crunch's crunch berries with breakfast? Whoa, Dad, we're on Crunch Island. <gasps> it's Jean Le Foot. <laughs> I'm so glad that you asked. So we took full ologies episodes and then we sliced and diced them up to make these bite-sized, classroom-friendly edits of our deep dive classics. So we're about to fill your plates with a bunch of food facts this episode. But first, let's feast on this. My thank yous. Uh, Thank you to everyone supporting on Patreon. As little as 25 cents an episode gets you into that club, and then you can submit questions for the ologists. Thank you to everyone who clothes your bodies in ologiesmerch.com items, and thank you for rating and subscribing. That keeps this podcast up in the charts, so if you leave a review, I read it. I'm a creep like that. And this week, thank you to Heather Albrecht, who left a review that said that they had a moment of deep relief and gratitude when their baby, quote, in the throes of a fantastic lunchtime tantrum, stopped crying and smiled as the Ologies theme song came on. And I hope they like the Smologies theme song and learning about oysters and squash, Heather. Thank you for that. Okay, let's go. So food anthropology, it's the study of how we eat. And this week's guest is a food historian of sorts. I met her over a decade ago while we were both staff writers at the LA Times and she covered food naturally. And she moved up the ranks to be the LA Weekly food editor and the KCET food editor before she jumped into the podcast realm with this truly amazing food history podcast called Smart Mouth, where she invites a guest to talk about the history of their favorite foods. She's also written for Gawker Media and Serious Eats and Tastemade and just launched howtoeatla.com. And for anyone who lives in LA and has a mouth, that is a great site. We'll link that in the show notes. It's awesome. But Pop that top button in your trousers and tuck a napkin into your collar and get ready for a buffet of information with Smart Mouth podcast host, editor of howtoeatla.com and food anthropologist, Catherine Spires. Now, let's talk about feasts. Yes. Let's talk about winter feasts. Yes. Why do you think from an anthropological point of view, we just want to hunker down and just get a little roly poly Mm -hmm. and have insulin comas Mm -hmm. in the winter? Um, Because we need the warmth from the calories. And also it's boring because it's dark out. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) 
I'm bored. Let's eat. Yeah, exactly. Like you want to eat and also you don't mind sleeping more. We're, we are bears, essentially. Like we follow the bear lifestyle. I mean, in the <laughs> wild, our lipid stores are our bank accounts. Yes. I yeah. Mean, I feel like when you see, when you see a badonkadonk bear, uh-huh. that bear is wealthy with fats. Yes. You know, which I suppose in the winter, we do need that. Do you, when it comes to feasting in the winter, what was it like historically in, de- in any part of the world you can think of? Like, mm-hmm. did, did we eat things we'd put in the root cellar in the summer or did we just find what was available? Where's the food coming from? So your point about lipids being wealth actually applies to humanity too. Mm-hmm. Like if you're having a feast in the winter, that means you can afford sugar and salt. Oof. You are out of control wealthy. Right. <laughs> Yeah. So a lot of it, there's different kinds of feasting. Um, and we like to think of feasting as being like celebrations and like, we're all in this together and we're all celebrating and we're all having a good time, but humans being what they are historically, a lot of feasts are an opportunity to show off basically to stunt on your neighbors. No. And part of it could be as simple, depending on like the era that you're in and the place that you live. Sometimes it is as simple as being like, Oh, I'm sorry. You hadn't seen this fruit in six months. Yeah. I've got it. <laughs> Whatever. Oh my God. Yeah, it's preserved, but I've still got it and you don't because it means like that again, you have the ingredients to do it. You have the time when you're not out just trying to do subsistence farming to like preserve things for later. You have time to plan ahead. Being able to plan ahead is also another rich person thing still to this day. So did peasants not have winter feasts? Let them eat cake. Harder to. And that's so that's part of the the mixture of like celebration and stunting on people is that lots of times like the Lord of the manor would throw a feast for the serfs. Oh my! And God. that was partly to be like, thank you. But also to be like, see how great I am to you. Oh no. Like don't, don't defect to another farm because I've got the best feasts in town. Bribing someone with baked goods. It is a tale as old as time, but how do we know? It's, interesting that the oldest evidence of feasts that we have actually comes from art rather than archaeology. Oh, because I guess it's not like chicken bones in a casserole dish wouldn't preserve, I guess? (laughs) Yeah, that that could well be it. Feasts often come from offerings to, to the gods as well. It's like a party, but also an offering. So they have like basically like pottery shards from like ancient China and Sumeria, which is Iraq. Okay. So when, what is, what's the history of American holiday season feasting? So where to even start with this one? First prefacing by the fact that we are talking about like Northwestern European traditions um, coming over to America and starting in New England and spreading out from there. That's probably a lot to unpack. It is a lot to unpack, and I wanted to do a little digging here. One publication, Indian Country Today, had a great article and interview from a few years back with Ramona Peters. She's the Mashpee Wampanoag Tribe's Tribal Historic Preservation Officer. Now, she said in regard to the famed 1621 inaugural Thanksgiving feast, she said the following thing. It was made up. It was Abraham Lincoln who used the theme of pilgrims and Indians eating happily together because he was trying to calm things down during the Civil War when people were divided. It was like a nice unity story for public relations. She said it's kind of genius in a way to get people to sit down and eat dinner together because families were divided during the Civil War. 
Ramona Peters was asked if she'll celebrate Thanksgiving anyway. And she said, as a concept, a heartfelt Thanksgiving is very important to me as a person. It's important that we give thanks. For me, it's a state of being. So that was a great article in Indian Country Today. And there are other wonderful first-person experiences. Uh, Smithsonian, AmericanIndian.si.edu has some great articles as well. But getting back to the food history so much meat. Basically any kind of meat you could get, which was turkey, wild turkeys, which don't look like the turkeys that we eat now, but it is the same animal. And then venison and seafood, which actually even to this day, seafood is a bigger part of the New England Thanksgiving menu than it is anywhere else what, in the country. Seafood? Mm-hmm, yeah. Oysters and mussels are a big part of it. So you're saying the first Thanksgiving's more meat, deer, turkeys, mm-hmm. oysters, mussels, mm-hmm. and all the other poultries they could find. Just okay. with everyone's they could find and shoot before they flew away. They were like, yes, let's do some of this. And what I think you can like sort of see how things change for people and like the, the changing Thanksgiving menu, because for one thing, again, they didn't have a lot of herbs and spices back then because those were wildly expensive. They hadn't figured out how to use the new ones. They hadn't like figured out how to grow the ones they brought from Europe. Roasted flesh just tastes good on its own. You don't have to do a lot with it the way that you do have to do with side dishes mm-hmm. <laughs> that need a lot of different ingredients. And again, it's survival food. Um, they had an abundance of meat, which is rare, but they weren't like coming up with new recipes. Right. They were like, it's not alive. <laughs> yeah. It's not wiggling. Let's yeah, eat it. Exactly. The idea of having like flavored food, I think as Northern Europeans started traveling the globe, they were like, this tastes good. Taste? Is that even a word? What? <laughs> and now when did, let's say like the Thanksgiving feast become a widespread American phenomenon? And what's changed just in the last at least decade mm-hmm. of us like getting hip to the fact that it's all apocryphal? <sighs> okay. So... Thanksgiving for a long time was really only celebrated in New England. Oh, basically the people whose grandparents were there. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. It's like <laughs> yeah. Woodstock or something. Yeah, exactly. So I really think it was until around probably like just after the Civil War that the rest of the country got into the idea. Okay. Um, and you can still to this day see regional differences in what people consider necessary for a Thanksgiving dinner. Oh my God, like, is this going to be all about green bean casserole? It's largely about green bean casserole. <laughs> there was a phenomenon that started around the ni- around 1900 and lasted like probably until the 80s. And that is food companies, the ones that sell packaged food, processed food, writing their own recipes in-house and sending them out both as recipe booklets, but also sending them to newspapers to be published in the newspapers. Oh. Yeah. And... The recipes could be good, bad, and different, but it was mainly about selling the products mm-hmm. that these companies made. So green bean casserole was invented by this food scientist who worked for a food company as a way to use cream of mushroom soup. So a big feast meal is made with love and propaganda. Now, what else is on your holiday table? What are some other dishes that are pretty regional? Are some people like where a canned smooth cranberry sauce a state and others are like chunky and others are like we make it on the stove that one i think isn't 
regional necessarily. Okay. What is regional is uh, sweet potato casserole. Okay. That's another Southern one. That is another company created recipe. <gasps> it was a marshmallow company. I think it was called Angelus. And they hired a woman who like wrote a cooking magazine in like the 1920s to find out how to use, like convince people to use marshmallows more. Oh my God. And that was one of her inventions. Did feasting like this really take off you said after the civil war but like after the night like the turn of the century 1900s like industrial era when did we see an explosion in this kind of eating so it wasn't until the 1930s that petitions to make it a national holiday really picked up so it was franklin roosevelt who had to make the decision of which day to place it how'd they decide it was such a huge fight in one year there were two thanksgivings Stop. Yeah, because they couldn't decide. Roosevelt had said fourth Thursday in November, and then the Republican Congress got together, Republican Majority Congress got together with like the Business Leaders Association of America or whatever it was, and they're like, no, make it the third one, because they wanted people to be able to shop for Christmas and feel okay about it for longer. But then Roosevelt's idea eventually won out. But in the 1930s, there was like a lot of madness around <laughs> where to place Thanksgiving. What else has changed over the years? And that's the difference, too. And like the way that Thanksgiving has evolved is that it used to be like eating meat was the fancy thing. But as America became more industrialized and wealthier, you see the addition of ingredients like every dairy product. That's something that only rich people can do. I never thought of it that way. Yeah. So you move away from meat being the special dish to like all the things that like take time and energy or you have to buy that you can't make yourself at being like the star of the show. Why, when we think of cartoon feasts, do we see a pig with an apple in its mouth? I think for maximum upsettingness. Okay. I always wondered what that was. It was always like, oh, this means we're feasting. And you're like, get that thing out of there. Well, it is that sort of like English thing, which I think in our heads were like um, animal presented whole on the table. And if we're talking about like a European cultural influence, like that's what we think of for fancy. But if you think about Asian food, foods that are served family style obviously lend themselves more to feasting. That's a good point. Which I think might be part of the reason why so many people who don't celebrate Christmas now do Chinese food. Oh. Because you still got that same vibe and it's even more communal because everyone's like sharing from the same dishes, which we tend to do on Thanksgiving. Same idea. Because the idea of having a lazy Susan and yep. a bunch of dishes at a round table where you can see everyone, mm -hmm. like that lends itself to not only the eating experience, but also the sharing of plates. Absolutely. And I feel like in Western culture, we don't really have that. But before we spin ourselves into the questions that you submitted, patrons, let's take a quick break to raise some money for a worthy cause. And Catherine just launched that new website, howtoeatla.com. And so in her honor, we're donating to the LA Regional Food Bank because one in five people in Los Angeles County experiences food insecurity. And the food bank has been fighting hunger since 1973. Just 25 bucks provides the equivalent of 100 meals for kids, seniors, and folks who need something to eat. So learn more at lafoodbank.org. And thanks to these sponsors for helping fund that donation. Oh, KiwiCo. We love you. Kids love you. Parents love you. Uncle Allies love you. 
Here's the deal. So whether you're staying at home or you're heading out on some summer explorations, KiwiCo is inviting kids, also kids at heart, that's you, to enjoy their first ever summer adventure series. So kids from two years old to teens can receive six hands-on science and art project kits over six weeks. They have something for everyone. They have different topics for each age, whether your kid wants to explore space or learn about dinosaurs. And I've heard from my parental friends that summer can be a little challenging to keep the kiddos busy. KiwiCo's like, we did the legwork for you. And the summer adventure series is this personalized experience with super fun activities like a bottle rocket kit where kids can build an actual bottle rocket and you can either receive all of your summer adventure crates at once or weekly for six weeks. I think it's so amazing that they have different crates for different ages, everything from the great outdoors that has like giant bubbles or a window garden to a trebuchet kit for ages nine to 14, an entrepreneur where you can do textured clay projects. If you have kids, if you know kids, keep them occupied and learning and having fun this summer with KiwiCo. And you can get 20% off your summer adventure series at KiwiCo. KiwiCo.com slash ologies summer. That's 20% off your summer adventure at KIWICO.com slash ologies summer. Oh, have fun. You know what's essential to science? It's not a lab coat, it's skepticism. You know me, I'm down rabbit holes, I'm looking at charts, I'm checking conflicts of interest at the bottom of published papers. And this is helpful because it means I don't buy stuff I don't need. And if you're one of me that can spot a too good to be true health hack from like a mile away and you read labels like it's your job, congrats, you're a skeptic. One brand of vitamins that is literally made for us is called Ritual. It's a multivitamin that exceeds our standards. They have clinically backed essential for women 18 plus. It has high quality, traceable ingredients. They're in clean, bioavailable forms. They're also a certified B Corp, female founded. Just today, one of my powerhouse friends was like, "Ah, found out I'm vitamin D deficient. I was like, yo, ritual, dude. When I forget my multivitamins, there's much less pep in my step. I have noticed. They're also very beautiful. They look like tiny lava lamps with little tiny beads in them. There's actually a scientific reason for this, but I got to wrap it up. So no more shady business. Rituals Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash ologies. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash ologies for 25% off. Get that D. Okay, let's dive in. Let's digest your questions. Vincent wants to know, why do traditions vary so much from country to country about what foods are feast foods? And are there any feast foods that are just seen all over the world, no matter what the local culture is? So it's the issue of abundance, which is going to change based on the flora and fauna of wherever it is that you are. Starches traditionally, well, just the plain starches, like plain rice, plain noodles are never going to be a feast food because those are the easy things to get. Mm -hmm. It's when you start being like, I've got this potato, but I also have two pounds of butter. Mm -hmm. That's what makes something a feast food. So it is, it's items that are scarce. So fruit, for instance, is considered very special. Any dairy product is considered very special. Meat used to be considered very special, but because of industrialization, it's not as much Mm -hmm. anymore. So these things will also change with just as the culture changes. So do uh, like the considerations, like what is special or fancy. So it's the rarity, kind of. Yeah, always the rarity. We want and we appreciate what we can't usually have. And what exemplifies that more than social media? And now Sarah wants to know, how has Instagram changed food? Is it prettier now? Yes. Oh. It is absolutely prettier. And restaurants at the beginning would pretend like they didn't care. Um, You actually can see it 
I think for me, the place where it's more obvious is restaurant design. Like restaurants have bigger windows now and they have um, plainer tabletops and walls with pops of color. So they're thinking about what will be a good background. Yeah. And then you'll also see um, on the plates and on more casual places on the like piece of tissue paper that they put on the plate will now be stamped with the logo and the name of the restaurant on it. Name plates. They're just a sign of the times. Oh, and speaking of timing. Nicole Sauce wants to know, um, why have so many holidays come to revolve around foods and feasts? Thanksgiving, Passover, Hanukkah, Christmas. So in a sense, why do the holidays? Is it gathering? Is it winter? Yeah, it's gathering. It's um, community. But it's also um, we saved up for this, which was a lot more obvious um, pre-industrialization where it's like we have one pig and we're not going to eat it until this holiday. Marissa Burr wants to know, why do some cultures fixate on food more than others? Like in France, lunches are two hours long and food is very important. But the U.S. food breaks are like not even taken seriously. So I actually think this totally goes back to what we were talking about earlier about feast days and how Americans can't just like relax. Mm-hmm. We are totally Calvinistic in our society, even if no one even knows what that means anymore. Here, let me read the dictionary for us both. Calvinistic, marked by strong emphasis on the depravity of humankind. So in other words, we do not believe in having a nice time. <laughs> France is like, you only have one life, enjoy it eat a lunch. And Calvinism, side note, was the brainchild of a Protestant thinker, John Calvin, who was a theologian, which is someone who studies the nature of God or religious beliefs, which reminds me. Okay, you are a religious studies major. Mm -hmm. Uh, Paula Herrera wants to know, is the Last Supper considered a historical feast or just theological? Like assuming it did actually happen when they have eaten anything other than bread and wine. Oh God, this is actually so funny because I happen to know that Da Vinci's The Last Supper, painted in the 1490s, it's really muddied now by like years of existing and also bad restorations. But the food items depicted on the table in his painting of The Last Supper are oranges and eels. Nice to serve eels here, boy. Not sure, but I did dig up that one of the reasons the meal depicted was pescatarian could have been because Da Vinci himself was a vegetarian because he loved animals so much. So Leonardo Da Vinci... The first, maybe vegan, influencer. I find this cute and inspiring. Tina Raudio wants to know, who was the first person to deep fry a whole turkey? (laughs) I'm going to look into it. I'm pretty sure that's Southern. So story goes that in the 1930s, a Cajun chef witnessed a deep fried turkey and was like, yep, that's going to happen more. I'm going to start that. Don't undertake it lightheartedly. And this is, I'm going to say something and everyone listening is going to be like, yeah, duh, except for that people don't think about it. Don't do it indoors. Oh God, no. It has to be done outside. And like, have your fire extinguisher ready. Yeah, things can go very, very wrong. Apparently it's delicious. Clearly that's why people keep doing it, but don't hurt yourself. It's not worth it. It's not. So play it safe because it might save your life unless you're a turkey. Actually, speaking of sparing the birds, Todd McLaren wants to know, what are some popular vegetarian feast main dishes other than the ones that mimic meats like tofurkey? Can we, what about like a, like a stuffed portobello or like a... Yeah, um, I've heard some vegetarians joke about how mushrooms are the meat for vegetarians. Yeah. Um, I think mushrooms are really delicious and you can, I think stuffed portobello is a really good idea. Lots of times it just has to do with the seasoning that you put on tofu or tempeh um, that makes it delicious. 
Oh. Um, the reason why tofu was used as a meat substitute was like a Chinese um, Buddhist thing where they would just, they would actually like form the tofu into the shape of the animal and season it with the seasonings that you would use in, for that animal. So this is true. As Buddhism spread from China to Japan, so did tofu. And the Japanese label of shojin ryori arrives in Japan via the founder of Zen Buddhism, a monk. And many shojin dishes mimic meat and are called things like mock goose, which doesn't have quite the same ring as a tofurkey, which is a loaf of roasted bean curd that has spared many a bird during its 42 years on the planet. Um, what do you love about your job the most? What's the best thing about being a food anthropologist? Um... I like finding out new stuff all the time. And I think it's been such a way in for me to understand more about the way that the world works, which is really cool. And to, it's so easy for us to be knee jerk and be like, why did that person do that thing? But if you know why you can empathize a little bit more to the point where actually I think I'm too empathetic. I can see other people's points of view constantly and it's exhausting. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good problem to have. It is. So ask smart mouth people a heaping helping of questions because they love to spill the beans. Now, once again, Catherine Spires has a food history podcast called Smart Mouth. It's truly excellent. She also owns the podcast network Table Cakes. So check out that array of shows. She just launched howtoeatla.com if you're an Angelino who needs to know what to eat here. And a link to the LA Regional Food Bank is in the show notes. And she is at Catherine Spires on Twitter. Catherine underscore Spires on Instagram. We are at Ologies on Twitter and Instagram, and I'm at Allie Ward on both. And thank you, New Smologites, for being here. New episodes are out every other Sunday. You can check the URL, alleyward.com slash Smologies, or the link in the bio for 16 other Smologies episodes and counting for your holiday drives. Thank you, Mercedes Maitland and Jared Sleeper, for working on those. Links to the original full episode are available on alleyward.com or in the show notes. And a full list of credits for this episode can be found in the show notes as well, since we like to keep things small around here. And if you listen to the end, you know, I give you a piece of advice. And this week, it's just that when you're shopping for holiday food and you have the option or ability to get a second can of whipped cream, get it. No one ever turns down a second helping of whipped cream. We all love it. Also, if you're not able to volunteer or to donate at all this holiday season to a soup kitchen or food bank, don't worry. They need volunteers and donations all year round, and help is always appreciated, even more so after the holiday cheer dies down. And if you're getting your food from a food bank or from a soup kitchen, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, and that is what people are here for, to help each other out. So I hope that you have a big, good dinner, because you deserve it. Okay, until next time, Smologites, bye-bye.